everybody. I'm Steve Sandy from Apple World Today, and you are listening to Episode 4 of the Tangible Tech Podcast. Now, for those of you who were anxiously awaiting the arrival of the podcast on Spotify, hey, you can now rest easy because Tangible Tech is available on that platform, as well as on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Podbean, Radio Public, and Stitcher. So we're on just about everything. Of course, those mean nothing if we don't get the word out to new listeners. So I'm giving you all of a task today. Please, please, please tweet or post on Facebook or otherwise let at least one other person know about Tangible Tech. If we can get you to tell like 50 people or a thousand people, that'd really be great. Okay, enough of that. Let's get down to brass tacks. Um, hey, If you're wondering where that saying came from, it's unknown, but uh, etymologists, those are the people who look into the origins of words, think that it was first used in Texas in 1863. Now, what it means is dealing with the important details. So we're going to be dealing with the important details. And there are multiple possible sources. Uh, Wiktionary says, and we quote here, a theory is that it comes from the brass tacks in the counter of a hardware store or draper's shop used to measure cloth in precise units, rather than just holding one end of the nose and stretching out the arm to approximately one yard. Another possibility is the 19th century American practice of using brass tacks to spell out the initials of the deceased on top of their coffin. Alternatively, and I think this is actually the uh, source, it may come from Cockney rhyming slang to mean getting down to the facts. So there you go. Something else you learned today, and it has nothing to do with technology. was I? Uh, Yeah, today we were going to start talking about tech, and rather than hit just one topic today, I've got a couple of stories that get into the uses of our current technology to do some pretty amazing things. Now, I've always been a nerd, and uh, for about 10 or 15 years, starting at maybe about age 12, I was obsessed with model rocketry. And this was back in the days when, like most American kids, I wanted to work in the space business because we were going to the moon. Yeah, I grew up in the 1960s when the Apollo program was in full swing and when nobody cared when kids were blasting off rockets from fields. Now, you even mention that you're going to fly a rocket in most parks and you'll have the cops all up your ass. Well, those rockets we had were unguided. They basically went wherever the thrust from the rocket and side forces from wind sent them. Now, real rockets use something called thrust vectoring, which on those real rockets is done by using big hydraulic pistons to actually move the engines a few degrees in one direction or another. So uh, think of it as uh, moving your finger to keep something like a pencil balanced on the tip there. That pencil is uh, kind of unstable, but by moving your finger back and forth, you can actually, if you're really good at it, you can balance a pencil on the tip of your finger for a long time. Well, uh, like I said, you know, our friends at SpaceX, uh, they take thrust vectoring to the extreme. Uh, They use it to ensure that satellites and sports cars get to where they're supposed to go, you know, basically with one of their uh, great rockets. 
and uh, they also use it to allow first stages to land on legs, like rockets are supposed to do. At least they were back in the late 50s and early 60s. All the rockets you saw in these, you know, rockets of the future things, they always had legs or big fins that they were landing on. Eh, it kind of went away. Well, anyway, here's the story for today. Model rockets can now have thrust vectoring thanks to a guy named Joe Barnard and his company called Barnard Propulsion Systems. Well, it's currently used to minimize the size of the drag-inducing fins that normally keep a model rocket stable and pointing in one direction. The Signal Alpha Flight Computer and Thrust Vectoring System should be able to allow model rockets to land vertically under thrust, kind of like that Falcon 9. Now, to quote Bernard uh, Propulsion Systems uh, about their uh, signal avionics system, the signal avionics system makes model rockets more realistic by enabling thrust vectoring at the model scale. The flight software tracks vehicle flight dynamics while the rocket is powered on. Signal looks for cues to shift system states at liftoff, burnout, apogee, and landing. Especially regarding liftoff, this makes signals operation simple. Once detected, thrust vectoring is activated, in-flight abort is armed, and high-frequency data logging begins. Now, technology has a way of making everything less expensive. You know, back in the 60s, if you tried doing something like this, well, you couldn't do it because the uh, electronics would have been too darn big. But uh, here, the Signal Alpha system is going to cost 299 bucks, And because this is essentially creating a, a guided rocket, it's only available for sale to residents and citizens of the United States. Now, you know, all of this talk reminds me of a historical fact from the early days of personal computing. Now, most people nowadays don't realize that the first commercially available personal computer, the MITS Altair, and that's M-I-T-S in case you're wondering, was actually made by a company that made electronics for, what else? Model rockets. Now, MITS was a company in Albuquerque, New Mexico, that was run by a couple of guys named Forrest Mims and Ed Roberts. Now, MITS stood for Microinstrumentation and Telemetry Systems, and these guys started up their company in 1969 to produce telemetry systems for model rockets. Now, they were a lot of fun. Uh, their kits did things like Oh, produce a flashing light so you could fly a rocket at night and extrapolate things like acceleration from the distance between the light flashes on a photo. Of course, this was back in the days when you took uh, photo on, or photos on film and you would just kind of leave the, the lens open while you were doing this flying one at night. And Anyway, it was pretty difficult, but you could do some elementary physics with it. Now, the transmitter that they sold was... Uh, absolutely cool. I remember just, you know, thinking I had reached uh, Nirvana back then. It was a transmitter that you would put in the payload section of a model rocket, and it had accessory modules that you could plug in, like one was a tone beacon. Eh, it's really not that exciting. It just kind of did a beep, you know, made a noise there. And uh, the main idea there was that you could find the rocket after landing. The other thing you could do with it 
is calculate the acceleration and kind of the speed of your rocket by recording the Doppler shift in the tone as the rocket climbed up. Uh, that was pretty fun. Now, a temperature sensor was another thing. So, you know, you could fly in the middle of winter. If you had a temperature inversion, you could actually see that the temperature up above was higher than it is down at the surface level. Uh, they had a roll rate sensor, so you could see how quickly your rocket was spinning, or if it was spinning. And they had some other things. Now, this little electronics company, MITS, didn't sell a ton of these. But they had the idea of making a computer that anyone could buy. So they created the first prototype of what would become the MITS Altair 8800. Now the MITS Altair 8800 was similar to the mini computers of the time like the Data General Nova and the basic 439 computer was basically that. A computer with no input or output except for LEDs on the front of the box and a bunch of switches. And most of the time you just used the LEDs and the switches to do troubleshooting. You know, try to figure out what you did wrong when you soldered the thing together. But you could add a teletype model 33ASR terminal to the computer for input and output. They were running about eh, $1,500 at the time. And even if you had enough money, you could get an 8-kilobyte system with BASIC. You could buy 8-inch floppy disks for storage and maybe even get yourself an ADM 3A video terminal. Now, MITS sold and shipped about 5,000 Altair 8800s by the summer of 1975. And these came out, if I remember correctly, kind of in the late summer of 74. Now, this company not only started the personal computing business, but it was also the genesis of one of the big software companies that's still around. A guy by the name of Bill Gates, who was a student at Harvard at the time, wrote a basic interpreter that was sold by MITS, and his buddy, Paul Allen, was actually the vice president and director of software at MITS for uh, quite a while. Out of this partnership and uh, Bill Gates not liking the fact that a lot of people were, uh, shall we say, pirating Altair Basic, came, uh, that was the genesis of a company called Microsoft. Now, there's a story I could tell you about the MITS Altair, but I think we've probably gone down memory lane long enough today, and I'll, I'll bring it up some other time. I've told you a little bit about my exploits with drones, and although the world is still trying how to figure out how to coexist with these things, they're definitely something that we're going to see flying around all over the place. Now, I keep my eyes on new uses for drones because I actually have a drone business these days, and the one of the uh, latest brilliant ideas I saw was from the University of Leeds in the United Kingdom. Now, they've come up with a way to detect and fix potholes and roads using drones. The research who developed this uh, technology realized that many of the huge repairs that need to take place on any infrastructure, whether it's on a road or a pipeline or a bridge, whatever, anyway, those uh, problems start as very, very small defects on the surfaces of those structures. So on a road, you might have a little crack or a pit, gets run over uh, again and again by cars, you get water into the crack, and maybe uh, in the winter you get freezing and thawing and it further cracks the surface. 
and eventually you have a big chunk of asphalt that just uh, gets displaced. On uh, steel bridges, uh, maybe you just have a little tiny area where the coating that was put on there, usually just paint back in the old days, well, maybe that chipped off and or it got uh, deteriorated by ultraviolet light. And uh, then, of course, you get a little rust spot, and that rust spot grows, and the rust spot eventually uh, gets really large, and eventually you end up with a crack, and, oh my God, you have to fix the bridge. Well, anyway, usually by the time that drivers complain to municipalities about potholes, they're causing a lot of problems. You have drivers swerving around them and into other cars. Or, uh, you know, even worse, you have cars knocked out of alignment when they hit a pothole dead on. So uh, it takes a long time for cities to get a crew out to do a fix on a pothole. I mean, there are some cities, I think Denver actually has a, a pothole hotline during the winter and spring months where you can call up and they'll send a truck out to at least do a temporary patch. Well, these researchers, once again from the University of Leeds, came up with image recognition algorithms that detect small potholes and they installed the software into drone cameras. Now the drone's flying along, it sees a small pothole, it identifies that it's damaged, and then another drone flies to that exact location and it uses an asphalt 3D printer to patch that hole. Now that patching is actually accurate to about one millimeter that means it's possible to stop a pothole from growing larger by fixing it when it's actually very, very small. Now, those researchers from Leeds and some other universities in the UK are looking at the idea of self-repairing cities that would use robots and drones and other technology to repair and maintain the vast amount of infrastructures that you know, keeps our cities uh, going and growing. So how long will it take to start seeing this technology in use? Eh, nobody knows, but at least we're seeing the first proof of concept here in 2018. By the way, I'm going to follow up on a voice message I received through the, uh, uh, if I can remember the name of it, Anchor System. Um, and this was from a guy by the name of Santino Peralta. Here's his message. Hey man, I really enjoy your show. I think you're doing a great job, and uh, I have an idea for a topic for the next possible show, if you want to jump on an interview and have a co-host with me, um, talk about blockchain technology. I don't know if you heard of it, but it's definitely already revolutionizing the world, and uh, get the word out there and see your thoughts and opinions about blockchain. All right, man. Now, to be honest with you, I am absolutely going to take Santino up on his offer to be on an upcoming show for one very good reason. Probably a good 10 to 15% of the emails I get every day talk about cryptocurrencies and blockchain, and I really don't have a good feel for the technology. You know, everybody tells me how great blockchain is. It's a distributed data store made up of a continuously growing list of records called blocks that are linked and secured using cryptography. Well, I really need for someone to tell me how the heck this all works. 
And uh, Santino, if you're listening to this, and I hope you are, please feel uh, free to reach out to me with an email to steve.sandy at appleworld.today, and we'll set up a time to have a discussion about blockchain. If I can ask the right questions and you can provide the right answers, maybe we can explain this very important technology to tangible tech listeners. Now, for our other listeners, please be sure to leave your feedback and ideas for future episodes uh, on this episode of Tangible Tech. Now, if you're using the Anchor app to listen to Tangible Tech, you can just leave a voice message that may be used in the next episode. Remember, I'd love to watch the listener numbers for this podcast continue to grow exponentially, so please share the podcast uh, with as many friends co-workers, family members, and uh, hey, if you happen to see complete strangers on the street, share it with them as well. Those of you who are listening on the Anchor app, be sure to hit that applause button, tap the share button, and like us on the Anchor network. For the rest of you, use whatever you can to get the word out to the world. Now, this recording sounds a bit different from the last episode. It's because I'm using the Spire Studio from a company called Isotope to record it. And what this is is a yeah, about a four-inch tall kind of truncated uh, cylinder with a bunch of LEDs on top of it. And what it really is is an impressive eight-track recording studio that you can take anywhere for studio-quality recording. I decided to use it today for this episode as a way to test it for a review I'm doing on Apple World today. Thanks again for listening to Tangible Tech. This is Steve Sandy, and I'll be back soon with another look at technology that you can get your hands on. Tangible Tech.